Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. What's going on? Having a cup of coffee on this beautiful pandemic Sunday. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you like the transition to working from home? Um, you know what? I think, I don't know if I'm like everyone else, but like, it's like there are good days and bad days. And if I, you know, when you wake up every morning and it, there's a brief moment where as far as you're concerned, like nothing has changed and you're like, the the world is full of possibilities. <laughs> and then like, you know, you either open the news or you like, you, you're like, oh, I'd like to go outside. And it kind of like smacks you in the face that, oh yeah, things are different. I can't see my friends anymore. Um, I don't know. So I, I think, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of creative work as probably you have in writing and making art and participating in things online. But I do, I am like at that point, I think we're how many weeks into this where I really just want to have like drinks out with friends or like a meal with my family. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. uh, the vacation is kind of wearing thin a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How about you? Yeah, I like it. So far. <laughs> I, well, you, I, yeah. I think a big part of it is that uh, Christina is at home and that we get to have three meals a day together and before she yeah. was working so much that that was difficult so that's been a lot nicer and then I like the, the the it's very different for me I think your work actually became more demanding and my work is more calm now that there's not the deadlines of exhibitions but I'm just making works uh, separate from exhibitions which I kind of like yeah that's actually a nice like break I think my yeah my day job at Fresh Books it's just like you could replace it with any job because you don't, you know, the people that's the way it kind of feels like it feels more commodified or transactional because you're working alone. A lot of the time you're like, what difference does it make? It almost feels like you're plugging into the stream. That's my really cynical uh, way. It's like we're living in the matrix and you're in a pod. Yeah. Like Kristen like plugs in upstairs. I plug in downstairs and then like I unplug. It's like so cliche, but like at, you know, 5 PM, like time for my walk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like neuromancer you, you jack in yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and so i you know like there's always these views like if you know that movie ready player one and stuff like these dystopian views of the future where we just like patch into vr in our slums and i think like but then you know, then again i i do think i go for long walks now and it's so quiet and there's no tourists and i really think it's a better version of the city and Yesterday we rode bikes to Brooklyn and walked around and uh, just seeing people sitting on doorsteps talking to each other. It felt like, oh, these are all people that really live here. Yeah. Everybody was from the neighborhood. I thought that was very uh, unusual. Just like you see everyone there and like everyone is really here because they dedicated themselves to being here and not just to be here for a weekend for brunch. Yeah. It's yeah. A very different because there's a hardship in living in a big city and then someone else just comes for the weekend and you're like, oh, you're not, you're not paying your dues or something. I definitely think there's that kind of self-reflection. You know, I think you were, you were with me on a panel earlier this week and thank you again for doing that. But, um, talked about like, or at least I mentioned on the panel, I'm talking to my mom a lot more. Like I'm not, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, ha- I can do that, you know, like I'm not yeah. in back-to-back yeah. meetings or if I am in back-to-back meetings, I can still find space in the day. <clears throat> anyway, I think um, I did read, though, in New York that uh, it's getting so warm and people are out in parks and like the parks are just crowded with people. And then I saw an image of you out in the I was worried about you. You're at a park surrounded by th- hundreds of people. Yeah. 
but uh, it, 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 maybe it was the perspective. But there was definitely there were little groups <laughs> of three or four people, but there was distance between them. Okay, and okay. we sat on the edge of the park. But uh, I mean, this is a whole different thing. But uh, I'm just not worried for my own health. But then, well, there's uh, kind of an aesthetic to this the social distancing in that manner, though. Like where it's like everyone kept to their own pod. It's almost like Victorian. England or something. It's like, yeah, I didn't talk to civil. the gentleman. I, I waved at him from afar. Yeah, <laughs> he did reproach yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it, it, but it's surprising that I don't miss going to restaurants. We 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 were in Brooklyn and we saw a Korean restaurant that was doing takeout, and then we ate it on the side of the street on a bench. And it was really nice, and there was no one on the street. It, it felt very luxurious to have uh, mm. what is normally such a busy area all to yourself. Yeah, the way restaurants work here right now is like you either have to order in advance or online, and then you come, you can walk in and you can pick it up, and that's about it. Like it's at like stations and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the yeah, it's kind of fun. Like you can get whatever food you want without lining up. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I do worry that we're gonna lose. Probably in New York, you're probably gonna lose like thirty percent of restaurants, right? I would assume the same thing here. Yeah, yeah, that sucks. Um, but yeah. maybe maybe it's and then, just and then Chipotle will buy up all the locations. Well, that's the other theme. Like if we were, well, we still are our old podcast, but the business side of this is there's going to be uh, massive amounts of consolidation, right? So big players that can survive. I try not to predict too much, also because maybe yeah. rents will go down and new uh, interesting restaurants will open up. So it's it's very hard to extrapolate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Chipotle comment though is probably true. Like Chipotle will still exist. Well, maybe they'll have another wisteria outbreak or something. Yeah, <laughs> so. but I, I found that if I try to predict things too much, I get really depressed. And if I look at the day by day and it's like, wow, this is the best Brooklyn has ever been. This is was like the best Brooklyn day I've ever experienced. But I think it, that's uh, a great attitude, which is like not to, but, you know, mourn the past or or like mourn even the future, but just to like embrace that hey things are different and maybe there, there's some things that, that are going to yeah, be worse and things mean, are going to be better. It's that weird trend of... Uh, uh, Buddhism sort of seeping into Western culture and there's a live in the now and then all of a sudden you really feel it like you get really depressed if you start trying to predict the future mm. and then you look at around you and you're like hey things are actually nicer now than they are normally so I should enjoy it right now yeah I mean so I mean one of my predictions is a lot of people are going to choose not to go back to work that were laid off or will find ways to to work that are not like because there is this yeah, moment of yeah, reflection, yeah. you know. I know well, that. We're also, not, you know. I I I do have my doubts. Like, and this might make her cringe, but my sister went on a photography trip to a tribe of uh, Native Americans in in uh, Brazil, in the Amazon, and so she I spent guess. three weeks there with them. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No. Yeah. So they. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah, so she was there photographing their ritual, daily rituals and their life, and uh, and it was amazing, and she had all these insights, and she came back, and she's like, I want to live life differently, I don't want to be stressed anymore, I want to spend more time with family, I, uh, I want to focus on human relationships, that's what really matters. But after a few weeks, you just get back into the grind, and the, it, it hasn't shifted her behavior in the long term, hmm. I think. Well, so, yeah. I, I, there's the same thing when people go to Burning Man or they have an acid trip and they're like, you know, this, all this stuff doesn't matter and what really matters is the people I care about. And then mm-hmm. I, I'd be curious to see if how many people really make a long-term change. But that's a great segue <laughs> to this week's film. <laughs> Materialism. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, like um, 
you know, what, what, you know, how we are either victims of our societal constraints or we break free from them and, and, you know, who's in control of what, but anyway, I think, um, do you want to intro? This was your we, your choice for a film this week. Yeah. Well, the 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 choice was uh, we talked about choosing films by female directors, and I thought this one was funny because it's a female director, but the the topic and the novel that it's based on is very misogynist. So that was an interesting choice from the director. She made a movie before this called "I Shot Andy Warhol," which was about a radical feminist who. Uh, was a bit crazy, and then shot Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she wrote the Scum Manifesto, saying we have to eradicate men from the planet. Mary Heron, right? Yeah. So she's kind of known to be a feminist director. She she got that label. She didn't want that label, but that label was, uh, you know, no, how she, labels happen. Yeah, and she's publicly called this film a takedown of misogynist society, right? Um, and it's of course mm. based on a book by Brett Easton Ellis, uh, a novel. Yeah. And the, and the second name. reason I chose the film is because we talked about in Paris is Burning, they were doing voguing and sort of reflecting on the 80s and mm. uh, oh, yeah. luxury, aspiration, uh, dressing like a businessman, even if you're not trying to fit in, trying to fit into an ideal that's created by fashion magazines, not a realistic ideal. All those things, are, these themes are in this movie as well, but from the other perspective. So we were talking about Paris is Burning, where you see the weird... TV news anchor talking with that news anchor white man stereotype voice. Oh, yeah. We're here live today. So, yeah, out of touch with women's... What uh, does the lip movement think of this? (laughs) Exactly. And so, um, basically, we were on the other side of the fence in the previous movie, and now we're on on the side of the Wall Street jerks, and they're very misogynist and racist and demeaning of anyone who's not them. And they're jealous of each other. It's not community based. It's very competitive. And so that I, I thought it would be an interesting contrast with last week. Yeah, no, it's a great, great, great contrast. So I guess like the, the plot summary, you know, is actually relatively simple when you think about it. Um, uh, the, it, the lead actor in this case is, uh, Christian Bale. Uh, and, would you want to summarize the film? or Sure, yeah. Christian Bill is a 26-year-old Wall Street guy. Um, one of the things is he's kind of bland. He, you know how male models are just kind of... The best way to do a photo shoot is if you don't show personality, you're kind of a blank canvas, and you wear the clothes well. <laughs> That's kind of who he is in the daily life, and I think he's frustrated that he's not that interesting. And then those frustrations bubble up, and in in the nighttime, he starts killing people. Um, And the idea is maybe that if you think of serial killer movies, they're always kind of the normal guy next door who looks like a high school teacher, kind of creepy, and then behind the scenes, there's a lot going on, and they get caught. And I think the idea of this movie is that he's such a privileged person that even if he admits to his friends that he's murdering people, uh, there are no consequences, and and that's kind of a, a metaphor for Wall Street. Of like, uh, we're just looking at numbers. We have to please the shareholders. So whatever it takes, even if that means we're killing the environment, or destroying jobs, or destroying yeah. families, or uh, jerking up the price of medicine, or anything that's not good for the common good. But it's the it. What matters is the bottom line and the numbers and. I think he is basically a, a personification of this financial maximization and efficiency. 
Yeah, and I think that so the debate, you know, around the film is, and, and probably I guess in the book as well, is um, is is he is he actually a villain or an antihero in some in some way? Like, obviously, you're supposed to well, hate I, the I, culture. I, I think you, yeah, yeah, I think you're you're trying to uh, have a moral assessment. <laughs> okay, what your position is, but yeah. in a sense, when you think of portraiture, when you think of the classic idea of portraiture. Uh, if you think of uh, Vermeer, the sort of calm painting, he's not telling you the girl with the pearl earring is a bad person or a good person. Mm-hmm. That's not the point of the painting. Ooh. So he wants to show you the time he was living in and he was yeah. sharing a moment. But he's not saying uh, that's good or that's evil. Well, that was, and, yeah. So if you, if you want to make a personification of the 80s or a caricature of the 80s, um, the 80s was a new era where the sort of hippie dream was over and it's more about uh, accumulation of wealth and nihilism. Mm-hmm. And if you portray that, then are you saying that it's good or bad or that's the way it was? And he's exaggerating it to, yeah, to really yeah. convey the feeling. No, my parents were um, part of a like a hippie movement that transformed into a yuppie movement. So their best years financially were in the 80s and they they, they transitioned from like, you know, like knitting and hemp like work to <laughs> buying designer furniture and expensive cars and things like that. And then, of course, the 90s were a disaster. But they, they, uh, you know, like a lot of their upwardly mobile friends sort of ascribed this idea of that's presented in the film of you are what you buy and this accumulation of wealth was a demonstration of identity. So, you know, we got the, you know, the Knoll chair with the, you know, Eames recliner and the, Yves Saint Laurent, you know, uh, blinds. and But in this movie, obviously, they talk and about it, what you it, wear it, and where you yeah. eat. But, you know. it, and it's a, it's a moment of a upward uh, bubble economy in, in Japan at the time also, mm. where you're so far past survival. So yeah. you're not thinking about uh, making enough money to have food to eat or to get your kids to school. You're, you're way past that. So then what do you do with the money? And then, it, then what's interesting is that at first, working is the idea of making enough to make a living. But once you get past that, and then threefold, and then fivefold, and then tenfold, and then hundredfold, um, you would think, okay, if I have this much money, I'll be happy. And I think this money, this movie focuses on the whole idea, like the more you have, the more you want. And so mm-hmm. the people you hang out with have even more. And uh, there's, a, there's a classic scene in the movie with the business cards, um, Yes, yeah, my favorite one of one of my favorite scenes, especially as a designer, yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in the history of films. Um, well, I'll describe the it's scene. One, it's one of the yeah. most uh, one of the most um, the best dramatizations of, of typography in because it's such a, a dry sub subject, but they really make it visceral. No one ever thinks about typography, right? So, uh, but I think it's also yeah, is, it's a great summary of this. The there's film's a board themes. meeting, and and one of the things that happens is. People constantly mix up each other's names because everybody dresses the same. And, and Patrick Bateman in his voiceover yeah. is saying Marcus Helbestrand is across the room, <laughs> but they call Patrick uh, Marcus and he's like, it's true, we're wearing the same brand of glasses, the same brand of suit. We go to the same hairstylist, although mm-hmm. my ha- haircut is a little better. Oliver People's glasses. Every There's yeah. always a brand name associated exactly with, you know, yeah. with everything mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's one guy played by Jared Leto 
who has the Fisher account. Supposedly that's a, so he has a <laughs> bit of a, he's a bit more powerful in the company. So everyone's jealous, and he drops his card, and then everybody's like, "Oh, I want to see that card." So Patrick Bateman shows everybody shows his card, and Patrick Bateman really starts sweating to the point where you think he's going to have a heart attack, seeing that someone else's card is better than his. Yeah, and so the, the but the way these cards come out and my, like so that before rewatching this film, that this was one of the scenes that just there's this scene and then there's of course the like Huey Lewis in the news scene, but there, we'll get to it in a second. But this scene like just like how like is seared into my brain as a young, you know, designer as being so hilarious <clears throat> because the subtleties of these business cards are also like they're so absurd. So it'd be like the and they're very tasteless. They're all the same. Yeah, yeah. Each <laughs> card. There's no personality in them whatsoever. You would see these cards and you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's interesting. The very subtle difference is like, oh, it's bone white. Oh, it's got like a, a ribbed finish. One is cream, one yeah. is eggshell, and <laughs> one is bone. Yeah, one yeah. is bone, yeah. And it's like <laughs> slight variations on the typefaces. And of course, as a designer. One has they, a watermark. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. The watermark puts them over the edge, which I didn't really, I, I, wouldn't, I didn't quite buy into, but... Um, you know, the typography is also relatively similar. It's various, <clears throat> you know, various variations. The placement on of theme. the information, the phone number is in the top right angle and the email address is in the top left or whatever. It's all the same. Yeah. yeah. But then also the sound and the tension in the scene of like the cards coming out and just, <clears throat> I think Christian everything's Bale. Everything's in slow yeah, motion. Yeah, everything's in slow motion. Christian Bale does such a good job of just being like in the moment so like anxious about looking worse than his peers and this one-upmanship and really that's i think the one-upmanship and this scene in particular but you see it throughout the whole film again and again is like this is male culture or what mary heron kind of and probably um you know similarly with brett easton ellis is like portraying as like it's not just wall street culture but it's also a particular kind of male wall street culture of like competition do you not think you don't think that women are as competitive with shoes or purses or things like that? Well, not as portrayed in this film, certainly. Um, yeah. And so the the film really does portray the the male like misogyny of Wall Street as well, like similar to you know movies like Wolf of Wall Street or others, where you know the women the women are just the are objects of consumption, like business cards. Because um, he has like uh, Chloe well, Sevigny. The, I think the like, whole yeah, yeah the whole premise of the movie yeah. is that. It, it, in the book, even more that the the idea that everything's described in the same tone of voice, whether it's uh, brands of bottled water or how to torture a prostitute or what couch you have or yeah. how to kill your coworker because he has a better business card. <laughs> it, everything's exact same and sort of distant, cold, uh, emotionless. Everything is just status and comp- competition. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is he, he kills many people but the only crime that gets investigated in the whole film is the crime of the murder of one of his male co-workers right so yeah um lots of other people die the way i viewed this film if i can just get it out up front is like and it's mentioned throughout the film too which is like so like scary but it's basically like trump he's like it's like trump you can remember you know what people say like in the book they mentioned trump a few times it's, he's mentioned in the film like as the well platonic ideal yeah, yeah. And he was the ultimate yuppie of that era. But, you know, when Trump was getting elected, Trump was even joking, like, he could get away with murder. And then in this film, like, (laughs) Bateman's getting away with murder throughout the film. And you're like, what? Is this just like a satire of Trump? In fact, he like comes, he goes, he gets more and more daring. He's like, 
admitting to people that he killed people. Like he's at a club and he's talking to a girl and he, or a woman and she's like, what do you do? And he's like, I do mostly murders and executions. And she, she's like, oh, do you like it? I've heard people don't like mergers and acquisitions that much, yeah. you know? And so he just like gets more and more daring with his, um, with his murders and out in the open and, and people don't even pay attention to it. I feel, I, I felt very much like it's like, I don't know. It's, it yeah, really it, embodies Trump's attitude. Do you, do you remember attitude. the story of that guy who bought the Wu-Tang album? Um, the guy who bought so the, the Wu-Tang album. The Wu-Tang Clan uh, released one oh, album. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Go for it. Not not in a normal distribution. So the normal distribution of music is free or almost free in lots of units. And they said, let's turn that idea around. We're going to distribute it like fine art. So there's only one copy of the album. And it was in a silver sort of treasure box with a disk drive in it. And whoever bought it, bought it for one or two million dollars. And they were the only ones. And... So some Wall Street guy uh, bought it, and apparently Wall Street is really into hip-hop because hip-hop is all about showing off and uh, bragging. Mm-hmm. And so that those cultures really merged, and he's like, yeah, me and my bros, we love the Wu-Tang or whatever. And then he was also a guy who jacked up the price of uh, insulin or yeah. some uh, EpiPen or something. Now, like, remember that Yeah, story? he was buying different drugs and then like increasing the cost a thousand percent, yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. so that's really where you're, he's not literally killing people uh, directly with his own hands, but when you jack up the price of medication, there are consequences in, in health and well-being of people, so you're kind of killing people. But one of the, I think it's in the book that I was reading, like one of the pre- the ways the character is presented is, is someone who is valuable to society, that society cannot afford to lose, right? And so but like, just about, yeah. I just want to finish that Screlly is in jail now. So he, he was oh, defending yeah. himself in interviews. He's, he's like, this is my fiduciary duty. I have to increase the prices of these medicine for the shareholders. Right. And that sort of, what's interesting to me is that the bottom line in financial maximization leads to psychopathic behavior even if you're not directly killing people hmm. yeah well that was so kind of, like, yeah. yeah i'm sure we should increase this a thousand percent because it's good for the bottom line yeah and he did end up in jail i guess they made an example of him or he's saying it's not my choice it's an automatic response like breathing to ca- like this is how capitalism breathes but i think yeah, like what, yeah, what's yeah. In, that's what's interesting to me about the character in general and this idea that maybe society feels like he can't fail because he's too valuable right and but it's more like the image mm-hmm. of him is too valuable like having because for example all of the privileged people that he surrounds himself with if bateman were to become um, a villain, they too would have to admit that they were villains, right? And the whole system collapses. And so it's more, yeah, yeah. it's it's easier just to ignore because throughout the film, you know, obviously well, people ignore it. Is his his someone uh, mentions in the film that Bateman is working at a company that his father owns. So it, it, he's like, I'm really busy with work, and she's like, What are you talking about? Your dad owns the company. You don't have to go there. Yeah, and he's like, and what he, is he? There's a moment where the, his secretary opens his uh, calendar, his, his, his diary, and there's like one or two appointments per month. <laughs> yeah. He really is doing nothing. Yeah. And the rest is just scribbles of the murders he did. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the question that, um, uh, you know, that, that people have brought up that I, I was, I, I just saw one thing about Mary Heron saying that this is not a good question to bring it up, but let's bring it up anyway, which is, you know, is this an illusion? Is this all daydreaming? And, you know, maybe the diary is rep- evidence of that. 
does it matter? Like, shouldn't it? Why can't it just be ambiguous? Like, is he? Did he actually commit these crimes, or yeah, was it yeah, all in yeah. his head? And he, it's really just psychotic illusions. Anyway, um, apparently, Mary Harron thinks that that's the wrong reading of this film. So, but I, yeah, I thought we I should saw bring an it up. Interview with her. Yeah, yeah. She said uh, she wasn't trying to make it dreamlike, but the, it, she was saying he has the path of going from a psychopath to going to psychotic. But that doesn't mean the murders weren't real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just like I actually did not read it as um, fantasy at all, even though he does start to like in the film. I think a lot of people are triggered by the scene where the bank machine tells him to like give feed that bank machine the cat, a kitten that's in his hands. And then he goes and he starts like shooting at police cars and they blow up, and it's quite absurd. But I just saw that as he looks at his gun, he's like, Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) The overall satire of the film, I was just like, Okay, this has just reached the point now where. He can get away with anything. That's the way I saw it demonstrated, and the system will support but the Trump, it. Yeah, the Trump thing is really a fair point. Where he's like, "Yeah, I'm I'm so popular now. I can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and still be elected." Yeah, or I can like you know actually harm this prostitute so that she has to go get surgery, and then still get her back in the car, you know, in the next scene because I have more money than sense, kind of thing. Yeah. I can pay my way out of anything. Um, but the thing that interests me is the the the. The, the idea of being way beyond need. So mm. the, you're so far past survival and then you just create jealousy or need or this sort of fear of survival, that, that really intense desire, like I really need that. It, I think there's a natural inclination. You need food, you need shelter, these things, so you'll fight for that. Mm-hmm. But then you get past that and you have to create desire. And then mm. there's this... It's the same thing with sushi. Like someone came up with sushi and then we start perfecting it. And what I thought was interesting in the art direction of the film is that every shot feels like a, a catalog from the 80s like a, mm-hmm. a, or even a stock image of a business meeting. There's no, no one has any personality in the movie. Everybody just seems like the, you know how, um, what I'm talking about with a, a sort of default catalog that you, you don't want to be distracted by the people. You want to look at the clothing or the furniture. Well, there are a few so people with personality. Browsing. Like there's the queer guy that he strangles and then he, he thinks he's hitting on him. <laughs> like, and those, <laughs> like, uh, and, and he, he's and he actually the guy from Silicon Valley, the, the, Hooli Oh yeah. Guy. Yeah. The Hooli executive. Yeah. But he actually acknowledges yeah. in that moment that I have noticed, you know, that you're Bateman, that you're different, right? Like, and self-actualization yeah, yeah, yeah. or being different is frowned upon generally, right, in the film. So yeah, he exactly. notices that actually you're a little different, right? You like killing people or something. You know? He doesn't say that, but that's basically And then the, he starts uh, washing his hands with his gloves on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, 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 the idea of the art direction kind of looking like stock photography, where you, mm-hmm. you could take a still out of a movie and it would feel like a stock catalog of like, uh, business meeting or after hour cigar club or and what interests me is that society or humans as a as a whole create these platonic ideals that you have to uh, live up to mm-hmm. and they're not realistic like the the level of care for his hair and his outfit um, requires someone behind the scenes constantly. It's a movie, so they can do it perfect. Yeah. So they're constantly grooming him at every second. They're uh, lint rolling his suit, steaming it, adjusting it. There's no one... In, when you think of Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, the people who are really 
working hard, they don't have time to look that good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist that a, a person is good at work at a, like a world level and also has that many times has that much time for stomach crunches and haircuts and tanning and well, well like that's that's why i think that was the countercultural swing like i work with a ceo who you know kind of dresses down and i don't you know i definitely don't want to put him down but like the idea of the silicon valley ceo that yeah yeah, um, yeah. that's a new kind of privilege similar to tan skin where it's like oh yeah normally tan skin would have been considered someone who works out in the field and therefore like that's evidence of being of working class. And then it would have been like, oh, you can't afford nice clothes. But now it's like, I can afford not to look good is how yeah, people yeah. evidence or virtue signal that they're better than others. And yeah, so like, Zuckerberg is really the, the, the most extreme example. Yeah, like I can wear a hoodie or a t-shirt and it doesn't matter. I'm worth billions and you know that. I'm bigger than the clothes I wear. So, yeah. yeah. But that's what's interesting about this, this movie is that... Uh, they're not Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. They're not founders and they're not creative. They just yeah. have a job because their family is there. And then the rest of the day, they're just like a like a school class where they're just comparing themselves amongst 25 others. And they're like, oh, he has a cooler pair of shoes than I do. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And um, then the, the, the idea that that jealousy starts bubbling up and r- rises to levels that... Uh, then motivate him to murder people. Well, for a moment, though, like, I think, you know, we can signal that this is very similar to how, ugh, I hope, like, no art collectors are listening to this, but the art world functions no, no, I know what you in a similar manner, which is like, I can afford to ha- have this name that no one else can afford to have in my life, this brand name, like, it's a, maybe it's a Raphael Rosendahl, maybe it's a Jeremy Bailey, or probably a Jeff Koons. And, you know, and you can't have that. And this is an, ex- an exhibition of not only my taste, but my excess wealth, that's not, and this is not a good use of money. And that's the very reason why I need to spend it to demonstrate to yeah. you that I have this kind of pecuniary strength, that I have this, yeah, that I'm so I, confident I in you, my wealth. And I think if you look at the history of art and this sort of idea of, of de skilling, that, that you're like, oh, I, I could afford to buy a photorealistic painting, but that's what regular people think is very fantastic. So I'm going to go, someone just splashed the. Uh, paint on a canvas wildly and I'm going to buy that and normal people are not going to understand it and that's part of the fun well I was watching this like home renovation like I've been watching a lot of home renovation shows don't ask me why but I think because I'm trapped at home I'm like what if I could change this place and then on YouTube I got down a rabbit hole of just people doing tours of their apartments and I was watching this one influencer and she was like walking through her front hallway and she was like pointing out different things that she had handmade. And in in one case, it was like, you know, those like plant holders that are made out of brass, you know, and they have like air plants in them and they hang from the ceiling Mm -hmm. kind of thing. She's like this. Oh, these are just plastic straws. I spray painted gold. (laughs) And And to me, it was like such a, you know, it was the presentation of the, the aspiration. And then the, and the bonus points were assigned for, and I didn't even spend money on it. Like it was like the next step of kind of perversion toward that end, which is like, I've moved, we've moved beyond signaling the like affluence through brand name association. Now we're going to signal it through like the, all of the, the artifice is so real. It's just plastic. Like our furniture might as well be made out of cardboard. None of it matters because it just signals that we are in the know, that we are part of yeah. um, the moment. It, it, it reminds me, the movie Wall Street, there's a really good home decorating scene. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Uh, the, the, the movie with Charlie Sheen and yeah, Michael yeah. Douglas? 
What's the scene? Yeah, there's a scene where he starts making money and he buys an apartment and he's dating Daryl Hannah and she's an uh, interior designer. And it, they, they, it's all this fake stucco and fake brick and gold leaf on the wall and uh, like the funniest extreme example of 80s home decoration. Yeah. Well, I have to admit, like, I, I feel personally, like, while I was watching this film, I was, like, you know, very personally aware of, A, my privilege, but B, like, how much of what, who I am <clears throat> sometimes ascribes to the same values that were alive in the 80s. Like, I don't think this is just about the 80s. Like, I think that those those same, um, I don't know, behaviors and that same culture persists. Like, and I enact it. Like, um, Well, I, I do think that the, there's a base in the 80s that was set for a certain lifestyle of the uh, sort of not a family person, but the urban professional. Mm -hmm. And that is who you are. Whether you believe in charity or helping people or not, you are an urban professional without kids. Well, that example, that, for example. That was uncommon yeah. before yeah. the 80s. Right. But the example you just cited was one that really like made me stop and kind of like reflect during the movie. So there <laughs> is that... I? <laughs> totally because he's he's out yeah, i could see you doing a face mask in front of the mirror and you peel it off and you're like oh shit i'm patrick bateman yeah yeah exactly but he's out for dinner and and, and i know like i'm just like confessing to your like wildest dreams about me Raphael. so hang on for a second but he's out for dinner There's and then track. like they're at like this exclusive restaurant the menu's printed on metal which made me laugh out loud there's like two people at the dinner table who are clearly just like you know there because they're cool young people <laughs> they're they're dressed yeah. like boy george or something kind of like gender play and then yeah like her, this is her my fiance. cousin and her artist friend yeah exactly and then they start to have a conversation about like hey what we need to do in the world and politics you know your least favorite conversation and then bateman like like one ups them on virtue signaling all the things that we have to do and care about like and what we really need to do is solve inequality and we really need to solve this racism problem yeah he, blah, blah, blah. he becomes a politician all of a sudden and then in the next scene he murders like a poor homeless black man right and so <laughs> <clears throat> like talk is cheap you know ends up it, but it's just also the values or morals are another form of like accumulation it's like this intellectual form of capital accumulation that then you know just and As also information, this idea of, of acting to get what you want. So yeah, exactly. It's manipulative. He doesn't believe it, but he's like, okay, you know, in my 50s, I want to run for office and uh, I'll, I'll learn to talk like this. Yeah. And so it's it's also everything we've come to. It's the actually the anti-Trumpian kind of position, right? Like, which is yeah. we no longer believe even those who we, you know, once believed to be virtuous be, you know, in this quote unquote fake news era, which I will, I, I will not ascribe that we are in that era because I do believe, though I believe in subjectivity, I also believe that, you know, not everything, if we, if we really truly descend into this ideal of like, uh, everything is superficial, then we're really in trouble because, um, essentially you, yeah, murder is just as, I don't know. I it's made this, on, yeah. When I was in school, the Iraq war was happening and I was like, all images are equal now. In an image of someone dying in Iraq is equal to an image, as far as Google's concerned, of a, a bouquet of flowers, a right? Or a puppy, yeah. yeah. And so information flattening is worrisome. And I, and that, but it's funny to see in the '80s that was also kind of the feeling, you know. What's What's also funny is that uh, you mentioned Jeff Koons, and he talks exactly the same as uh, Christian Bale in this movie. <laughs> Sort of non-aggressive news anchor, everything's cool, but they're manipulating you at the same time. And, and so um, you you would not be surprised if Jeff Koons turned out to have a torture basement and that 
uncovered all these things he was doing and in the name of perfection and uh, I well, mean yeah. would you be surprised well I think that's why if, if Jeff Koons is an art secret art project with, had a torture chamber or something and it was all perfectly executed like if I found out he killed Basquiat I'd be like yeah that's probably what he did <laughs> You know, it wasn't the drugs. He actually like spiked the drugs or something. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. I, I absolutely. I mean, that's a great comparison too, because Coons was doing all this stuff in the um, in his early part of his career with him as a porn star, and really like in the film, the scenes that are like where you realize he has a narcissistic personality disorder are the ones where he's having sex while looking at himself flexing in the mirror. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, he's, he's more interested in himself. Yeah, yeah like he, it's not even the idea. He doesn't even desire the women that. Um, that he, you know, is is torturing or having sex with. He's just like desires himself in that situation. He's like, look what I have acquired, kind of thing. Um, anyway, and what, it's pretty it, horrible. I do find it interesting that he is a a person of wealth and privilege, and is clearly not making anything. So mm-hmm. I think in the last few years, the people we idolize in business uh, and the people, uh, it's the culture of the founder mm-hmm. and. People with ideas, creative people who disrupt and who come up with new things, and I think that was the original Silicon Valley dream. Mm-hmm. But like it's they actually, more they could code like as Wall well. They could code and be yeah. business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Most of the founders, Zuckerberg started making tools he wanted himself. Uh, most of them, I think Jeff Bezos is more of a finance guy. Um. Yeah. I mean, but he has this whole thing he's more of a strategy guy, right? Like he, if you study what he was looking at is like, how do I strategically take over the world? I mean, he's like, we could do it. We could definitely do. I don't know if Bateman and him have anything in common actually, because Bateman just seems to like stumble. Also really into working out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's creepy uh, that way. He's definitely, he doesn't have that Bateman hair, but that's where I was talking about earlier where like, I don't think Bateman in this film is particular like admirable no one would admire him and obviously it's satirical no. so you but i don't even think those around him admire him he's more invisible than anything else um well that i think that's the theme of the movie that he's just not particularly good at anything he's not admired and that's his way of like what's what's the one thing i'm better at than anyone else in the world and then he starts coming up with the craziest torture mm-hmm. uh, because he he admires serial killers he's he's when, when he's having drinks with his friends, he keeps mentioning, oh, you know what Ted Bundy said? You know what uh, this other serial killer said? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. nobody pays attention. Yeah, he's like, But he really admires them. That's like yeah. his thing. He found his thing. And he's like, oh, I'm sicker than anyone else. Yeah, I honestly kept and thinking, then, like, that's what it's like to be an artist. You like, <laughs> you like bring up some <laughs> obscure nerdy thing at, in dinner conversation. And people are like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Whatever okay. you say. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're into murders. Great. Yeah, moving on. Let's talk about... <laughs> <laughs> but but uh you know we, i think a lot of people you you grow up wanting to be really good at something and offering something to the world that is unique mm-hmm. i think that's a desire and then there's this culture of wall street where you want to fit in and just be efficient and make decisions that make the numbers go up and but then what's your personality doesn't matter it's just there's a digit there's make it higher it doesn't matter yeah, but I think at, at the end of the day, what you see, obviously, we've t- we've talked around it, is um, that Bateman wants to realize something greater than than that that comfort and constraint, right? Like, yeah, um, there's a there's a movie theater in Tribeca that's always empty, the, the Battery Park Regal. I recommend anyone when the world goes back to normal, but mm-hmm. 
and it's across the street from, uh, is it Morgan Stanley? A big financial bank. And you can you go up the escalators to the movie theater and you see their offices and they all have a different hobby. So they're all crunching numbers. Mm-hmm. It's not like the, the classic idea of a profession of a... Uh, in, 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 in German and in Dutch, it's it's uh, the word berup or berufung is similar to your calling. So you have a calling, and let's say that you, the idea of the the Jiro dreams of sushi is always a good example. He loves making sushi so much that what he dreams of, he's always at work. So he doesn't even care about the money. He doesn't expand the business. He cares about the quality of the product. So he loves doing what he does, and he would even do it for free. But when you're in finance, I think that's why he used that profession in this movie. You're just hmm. making numbers go up, and it's a fun game. But then looking into these offices, it's Goldman Sachs. That's the So you look into these Goldman Sachs offices, and some people have golfing posters, and some people have yachts. And like you have this little dream hmm. outside, and you're like, I'll crunch numbers for 10 years, and then I can retire. And then I yeah. can live my dream. And so it's, it's this idea of... of postponing of what you really want but you're creating a sort of economic system where in 10 years you can say fuck you to everybody that's that's the idea so yeah there yeah to acquire what i the life i want i have to like postpone my being my whole self i mean definitely i've had experiences like i can remember early on in my career like participating in a charity auction and i didn't sell my work i was the only artist that didn't sell my work but the first work to sell was a golf like a close up of a golf ball on a tee, <laughs> and I was like, it yeah. was so like yeah, I was so incensed. I left that being like, this is this whole thing's rigged. This is bullshit. Like, why am I even yeah. here? Kind of thing. That that movie Wall Street. There's a scene where Charlie Sheen wants to get into the office of uh, Gordon Gecko, mm-hmm. and he's waiting. And and in the waiting room, there's a huge painting of someone lighting a cigar with a $20 bill that's on fire instead of just a match. <laughs> so there's all the <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot. But, but we can talk about the culture. What's interesting about the, the Wall Street yeah. movie was that Oliver Stone really made that to villainize Wall Street. His father was a Wall Street trader, and so he knew the culture from right, the, right, up close. Right. And he's like, I'm going to make the most evil Wall Street guy, and everyone will understand how bad it is and will stop being greedy. He even has a, a a speech in the movie greed is good and he's trying to we're talking about this moral judgment yeah yeah but it ended up inspiring a whole generation of people like i want to be gordon gecko i want to work in finance and well apparently that's happened that happened with american psycho as well and in fact like i think um mr porter which is like a fashion website recently had like um you know a a bateman collection like you too can look like have the look from american (laughs) psycho and you you know i remember when that well, do you have you ever watched Borat? You know, like Sasha Baron Cohen's yeah. film, and I remember seeing that and being like, "This is going to change the world." Because the satire was like, you know, it was so. Um, I thought the satire at the time, anyway, was so good in in terms of like the moral, you know, context that we lived in. That he was exposing how fucked up the world was, and then what I saw instead were like YouTube clips of like twenty five year olds in Miami, like being like you know, racist, and bigoted, you know, taking on the satire as aspirational as an excuse. And often I've been in a similar context, like as an artist who works satirically, even last night I was briefly on like a stream and I said something like morally corrupt, 
which is like part of my satire. And I later like left being like, I wonder if they knew that, you know, like, and I always, you never know how people are going to take satire because it's supposed to be the, the definition of satire is an uncomfortable truth, right? That you reveal. And then if people just assume that, oh, that's reaffirming the truth, it's, yeah. it ends up having the if opposite effect. If you're too effect. good of an actor, then uh, they, no one knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, a, I remember the, f- the, f- the first week of art school and I was in a new city trying to make friends and the first week was inspiration week so we went to different museums and it was a really terrible exhibition. It was very mediocre. And I was like, guys, could you leave me alone for a second? I really want to take on this work. It's it's a very special. And no one knew I was joking. <laughs> I heard afterwards. <laughs> well, that happened through most uh, of my career. So, you know, I even met, I think yeah. I've described maybe even on this podcast, I met a, like a German curator this year who wanted to work with me. And he's like, it took me 10 years to figure out you were joking. And I was like, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> like what kind of horrible human being would I have been if I wasn't joking? But, um, you yeah. I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the, the, the TV show Silicon Valley versus mm. maybe those two movies, Wall Street and American Psycho. Yeah, go for it. Um, where um, they start with someone with a passion for coding and efficiency. So he's like, oh, uh, in the TV show Silicon Valley, they're like, we want to make this compression algorithm and it's going to make everything better. And this whole idea that um, Silicon Valley is not just about making money, it's about making the world a better place. And Oh, by accident, we might become billionaires, but that's irrelevant. We're really <laughs> trying to make the world a better place. And so Lewis Carruthers in American Psycho, the same actor who is, uh, what's his name in Silicon Valley? Gavin Belson? Yeah, Gavin Belson, yeah. Yeah. That's it. it there's yeah. this great quote where, he, um, there's, there's a couple of things, but he constantly is the competitor or the evil guy against Pied Piper and... He has a meeting with Richard. He's like, I want to buy your company. He's like, no, I want to persevere with my own company. We're the upstart. And he's like, you're just going to become me. So why not just become part of what I am? You're not going to avoid it. You're just going to grow into this corporate monster. And then there's another speech where Pied Piper is is catching up to them. And they're better at compression than Huli. And then he says, do you want to live in a world where someone else makes the world a better place than we do? (laughs) (laughs) the notion of competition is always ridiculous it's always like i don't want them to be better at helping people well ultimately that's like one of the you know that's the big downside of anything after the enlightenment and industrial revolution anything like post capital as everything era is that you know any point of view that's cooperative is viewed as mushy or you know, not the weak, you know, weak. Yeah. Versus like what might actually be a, a relatively um, sustainable alternative, in fact, was an alternative for, for centuries. But, you know, we intellectually, even and artists were part of this redefined um, uh, like good, like what, how am I, I don't even know the qual. I have to use the right word here, but they, what was good was redefined as what was progressive and progress became anything that was new. Um, and the idea of something new well, is actually really also also the idea of of um, yield or efficiency a return or on investment that kind of stuff yeah but like you y- you have crops you're you're a farmer yeah and you're like oh we made two hundred pounds of potatoes and next year you make two hundred fifty pounds of potatoes so less people starve and then it's very clear that that's better 
like, oh, we invented a way of irrigating and there's no floods and there's no salt water on the, yeah. on the crops. And so more people. And then you get to this survival where like more people is better, life expectancy is better, or think, metrics like that. Yeah. And honestly, I'm torn because my grandparents were refugees from the Ukraine and they survived like um, a communist famine. And so like they would they would be very angry at me, you know, for my Marxist ideals sometimes because they'd be like, you know, what are you reading? Who's giving you, who's giving you this advice? Yeah. Like we were dying. We worked we so were hard to move away from that. Yeah. 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 But so anyway, I don't think it's like I, my point of view on it is generally um, still conflicted. That's why I said I had moral there's moral consequence to this movie for even me, right? Like being a relatively wealthy, privileged white male. And among artists, that's also rare. Um, you know, watching this film, I was like, do I, am I just talking? Like, you know, my, are my behaviors really making a difference? Um, are you Patrick Bateman at the dinner where you're just like, we need to be better for each other? Well, like I, I collect, like I collect people in some way, like I have great, like I often have similar to you, like just incredible people I know. And a lot of my self-worth is comprised of like, hey, I know these great people and we can do great things together. And then, but if I look at the balance sheet of what have we, what have I achieved? Like, what have I actually made better? Um, I don't know if the balance sheet, you know, is that great? Um, you know, certainly there's people with doing a lot more with a lot less than than I've accomplished. So I don't know, I'm, I had an existential <laughs> crisis in this moment. But then, like, then you go back to the, the, the competition element where you're yeah. comparing yourself and measuring and those things are actually... They can be helpful. There's a the helpful form of rivalry which can be motivating, but most of the time it's the jealousy is not productive and it's stifling. Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know, history will com- will act, you know, is 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 based on actions, not words. So Yeah, yeah, but it's a bit like if if um let's say the Beatles were upset that they couldn't play Beethoven very well and they're like, "Oh, why even try? He's better than me." <laughs> yeah, that's true. You can't give up. I think we yeah. should talk about some of the the other the culture that's embedded in this film, and specifically music, um, just mm-hmm. to like also satisfy some of our music forward. Yeah, listeners. Th- there was a bit of user feedback that was very true. There's a bunch of movies where we forgot to mention the music, so we talked about Tokyo Ga and that soundtrack. I've listened to so many times. It really, uh, it, 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 the soundtrack of movies sometimes is a bigger part of your life than the movies. So, um, in this movie and specifically in the book he goes into so much detail about the music and and the music is this very polished post 70s music where they go into studio perfection and slick and perfectly packaged and uh, yeah and he seemingly is like a big fan of and this is really rich satire i think as well but he's a big fan of really terrible music like one yeah. of the best tracks it, of all it, time it's, it's yeah. yeah it's it's terrible music but when you listen to the lyrics it exactly summarizes the time it was made in so it Mm -hmm. it it is actually he talks about phil collins and whitney houston and huey lewis in the news (laughs) and then if you look at the titles it's actually quite brilliant that he the the songs he chose to talk about but the idea of it's hip to be square was exactly and and i don't think he addresses it in the movie as much but whitney houston has a song called the greatest love of all and it's actually the love of the self. It's a song about confidence. And from Whitney's point of view, it's about coming from modest background and striving to be better and believing in yourself. 
But from yeah. his point of view, the, the greatest love of all and loving yourself is about narcissism. <laughs> yeah, that's the greatest thing. Yeah, he does allude yeah. to it in the film. I mean, I think the uh, it's hip to be square. Is that what plays when he kills when the axe murder scene? Is that because he so. plays Huey yeah. Lewis in the news during that scene, and he's like describing the track in great detail and. You know, how well, it he's, came he's saying that, that Huey Lewis in the news at first is too new wavy for him and yeah. too punk, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then they reach this this level of commerciality and perfection that he. Loves. Oh no! Yeah, he alludes to the specific mix of commercial and and aesthetic value, right? Like that. There's like a. It's not just like com- the perfection is the the confluence of commerce and art, and that that's yeah. And, that's and what's perfection. funny is that he's really serious about it. So. <laughs> Jared Leto, is, I think he's Paul Allen in the movie. He's super drunk. He's on the uh, sitting on a chair. He's, he's so drunk, he's not even sure where he is. And he starts talking about Huey Lewis in the news, and he has like a, a seven-minute diatribe about that this is the pinnacle of human expression. And Jared Leto's like, yeah, they're all right. <laughs> and there's another scene yeah, where he so starts weird. talking about Whitney Houston, and there's two women in the room, and she's like, you have a Whitney Houston CD? And she just starts <laughs> yeah, laughing yeah, at him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she's crushing his ego, and then he lashes out. Then, so but in both those scenes, they're crushing his ego. There again, like there's a weird sympathy for the artist in this moment of like knowing like a lot of detail about something aesthetically, and and the whole book is comprised this way, and which is like the in, in, in I don't the book, know. Just if the, a side note that yeah. he talks about how much he hates live music because there are mistakes in it. He hates mistakes. He wants the perfection of the studio album. Yeah, and I, and I mentioned to you when I first turned this movie on um, how I was like aesthetic, aesthetically disgusted by it <laughs> because I had a memory of it being a super crisp, clean film. But that memory is based on um, the era in which the movie was made. What, right? what platform did you rent the movie on? So I watched the movie on Stars TV on demand yeah because you you mentioned to me that it was sort of shaky and but i think they have a bad print or something because i watched it on amazon and it was fine okay but then i watched like a trailer for like her or like a recent or moonlight i watched some recent trailers and the image you have to compare like this was film was made in 2000 the image today is this is clean and glossy in a way that wasn't possible on film because this is shot on film in 2000 so people you know not all films are shot on film anymore yeah but i I do think you watch the bad but i I only i bring it up just though because like again it was this like existential crisis where i was like i'm disgusted by this film and the character his attention to detail is what makes him is is one of the factors that makes him such he's so disgusted by the world because the world won't live up to his image of perfection right um and so he's the ultimate snob and including like understanding the details of Huey Lewis in the news or anyway, again, I would characterize myself as a recovering snob. And as I was watching the movie and it wasn't meeting my aesthetically pleasurable like <laughs> level. And, and Kristen is often like this too. She'd be like that film. I just hate the look of it. It's disgusting. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and you know, I don't know. I was just like cringing. It at works that the feeling. other way around too. Like I, yesterday I watched the Joker. I finally gave in. I was like, okay, I'll watch it. Yeah. And it was too polished because it's referencing movies like Taxi Driver or Mean Streets or The King of Comedy, the sort of gritty New York. But then it's the Marvel version or the DC version or whatever. And the people are a little bit too handsome. The clothes are a little bit too clean. Mm-hmm. There's dirt on the streets, but it's separate from the street. Like the street is not dirty. They just threw some trash on it. Right. 
So you being a perfectionist and demanding a perfect expression of an of a of a narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if if well, you look I, at I, old stock photo books from the eighties, they look very grainy by today's standards. But it gives you that feeling of a time. Yeah, I guess the point I wanted to make was just one of like um, this the sort of the like there's a tension in the in the desires of the film where he is ultimately trying to reach even with his own face and like his his whole routine. There's a, there's this great book I think I've said it a bunch of times by. Um, David Bat is it by Bachelor? It's called like Chromophobia, and it's a book about why we make our kitchens white and why like why why is good taste always associated with cleanliness and whiteness, um, which is like and it shouldn't be. Yeah, I've heard that a lot about my my work. That, uh, they think I'm using those colors ironically because they're considered bad taste. Yeah, and he he goes into like what is bad taste in this book. It's a great it's a great read. It's very short, but like ultimately it's a suppression of our insides like our urine our shit our bile our blood um and so you know the ultimate expression of this is evident in a doctor's office in a bathroom like why these places are white porcelain is because you can't see if you could see dirt right you would know it's not safe um and but also it's like just a reaffirmation of the psychology of like the clean you know even as a designer you'll refer to a clean design as one that is sparse, that has like a few. But that's pops also of the color. moment. The moment we live in, like in the nineties, maybe there was magazines like Wired or Raygun, where it was the design was as messy as yeah, possible. Yeah, the, the, gr- the grunge cool. kind of grunge aesthetics, and there's all kinds of aesthetic yeah. movements in the nineties that were about. And even now, there's um, you know ugly painting or clashing color is a desirable aesthetic. But I wanted to go back to something that. Yeah. Uh, we talked about installing the uh, entertainment system for your parents. Mm-hmm. And there's this clear, you can see, we were talking about progress, and there's this clear uh, window of convenience and user interface and image quality and sound quality. And it's really, I've talked about hi-fi before, but it's the sky is, it's unbelievable how far you can go. Like you can have a stereo where the cables alone cost $200,000, easy. Yeah. Yeah. That's not even outlandish. So, and and you get to this. Uh, you strive for perfection. So you just want the one remote control that ties everything together, and you have this one service, and you can watch everything, you can hear every song, and then you find out there are songs on Bandcamp that don't work with your interface, <laughs> but they're better songs that are the ones that are on Spotify, and you you lose your mind, and you just. It, there's this thing in software where you want everything to work together. Oh, I'm all in on Apple. I love it because my iMac talks to my iPad and the TV and it all works together. And then it turns out it doesn't work with your Bluetooth headphones. Mm-hmm. And you want the best Bluetooth headphones. You don't want the shitty AirPods when you're watching a movie, but then they don't work together with... And so there is this this weird desire for perfection that just doesn't exist, and uh, but that yeah. it's a human a human desire for control. There used to be this uh, advertisement here in Canada for Claritin, which is an allergy medication, and it's probably one of the most brilliant ads ever made. And it it basically you see a scene like any scene it could be, but it's usually an outdoor scene. And then in the ad, they like lift a film off of the television, so like it looks dirty, and then they like kind of pull this film back and then everything is clear and they say something like uh you know like see claritin clear and then uh, around the same time there was also an ad for glasses 
uh, I remember like opticals uh, and it, they're like, see an HD vision, like with your regular eyes. Yeah, it's like, yeah. But essentially like a desire for real to be better than real. It, I mean, I think that's also like emblematic of this film, like for the surreal, like because the film gets quite surreal at the end. I don't know. We, we, we kind of talked about it, but like mm-hmm. ultimately like, a, something greater than what one has experienced as normal and that des, does that desire ever end and your point is i think an excellent point not to agree with you too much but that that isn't it's a fool's errand to to seek perfection um yeah you know maybe but going there, the there's way. so many different cultures and religions that have their version of perfection whether it's uh the perfection is life after death and then everything's perfect there or the perfection is uh, being a monk and sitting on a mountaintop and not owning anything, or the perfection mm-hmm. is being the best citizen and having as many children as possible, or the, perfe- the, the, the perfection is helping as many people as you can. And it's almost like the, the, the human being is this bow and arrow and someone is stretching the bow too far, and if you stretch it too far, then the, it just snaps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's literally that's, the life we that's live right happening. now. <laughs> that's like a yeah. coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, that's I mean, the idea of perfection when when you get to germaphobe and, and like fear of, of the outside, uh, that's a very real thing right now. I'm not sure, yeah, they could have packaged and sold this uh, as a Airbnb experience, the, the one we're living right now. Stay home for it, eight it weeks. It is funny when you realize your own neuroses, and <laughs> I, I tend to be, I, I hate clutter. I can't stand it. Yeah. But I'm really not afraid of germs. I don't know why. It's, it's, and some people are the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I think like my whole point is that you have, you know, and it's Bateman's point too, which is like you have to eventually confront, uh, you know, what you are, which is just a mound of flesh. But um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So do we want to yeah. I just wanted to say that there's a scene where he has his secretary over for a date. Chloe Sabine, yeah. Yeah, and Jean, and, and she eats uh, some sorbet ice cream out of a, the, the pint of ice cream, not out of a bowl, so the cardboard cup. And he puts the... And she puts the, she puts the cardboard cup on the coffee table, and then she wants to put the spoon next to the cardboard <laughs> cup. And he's like, nope, in the carton. And Christina <laughs> yeah. looked at me, and she's like, oh, fuck, I married Patrick Bateman. <laughs> Yeah. Is that yeah. something I would say? It's honestly my father as well. Like, and I, we grew up and my, my parents always believed in investing in designer furniture because they're designers and they had the money to do so. So like, that's the privilege I come from, I have to admit. But they actually had mostly the opposite, like philosophy while we were growing up, while they had wealth, they later lost a lot of their wealth. And so their psychology changed. But when we were young, like, I didn't realize because I was just a kid, but we had like children's furniture that was designer, but we would just like write all over it with our crayons and stuff. (laughs) And my mom's attitude was, if you have nice things, you ought to use them. But later, my father, who was like the designer, he he became more and more like protective of these things and like their condition. And my dad is the type of person who's like, after 15 years of owning a car, you're like, is this a new car? You know, it's like everything had been maintained. He just like cleans constantly now. And I think it's like that uh, pursuit of perfection is a way of exhibiting control when you feel like out of control. It, it, to me, it's, it, it's really just all side effects of that we're so far past survival. Because normally if you're working hard all day on uh, uh, 
the, the crops in the field and milking the cows and whatever. You don't have time to think about perfection. So. Yeah, I guess you're, yeah, you're, it's like whatever, whatever's right for you. I mean, yeah. Whatever um, keeps you alive. Like, yeah. But you and I are both these like micro optimizers. Like I don't want a big home because then that's just more work. Like that's literally something I say almost every day. So I'm yeah, very, second home. I'm very happy with a very small home that's in a central location where I have access like to the best food and, you know, and the most options. But to someone else that would be like, why would you constrain yourself to such a narrow view of the world. But like I had, the, I honestly, I optimized this situation t- more than 10 years ago. And I've just like, just continued to optimize or like the job that I have is like, why have you been there 10 years? It was like, well, I've optimized it for 10 years to the point where I think it's like a great job, you know? Um, and so I think like, I don't know, I'm just being, I'm self-confessing on this podcast, but I see you very much the same way as one of the things we have in common, which is, um, you know, you've moved yeah, apartments. I think but there's like, also, I think that it, also comes from the, the sort of nerd lifestyle of software and systems and you see hacks or tricks that either make the software more efficient or make your life more efficient and it, it all blends together yeah but there's i mean you it's, see you see your life like you see your apartment as an operating system that you install apps on yeah and then the, or you see the restaurants around you as, as the app store that you have access to and it's a different app store in the suburbs then it's it's almost like Suburbs or city is like Android or iOS. So choices like that. Well, I just bring it up as a cultural movement because, like, there's this move towards tiny house or house movement or early retirement, and I, 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 the name that's escapes all me. That's pre-corona, though. You think that that's changed now? But <clears throat> I don't think people want a tiny house anymore when you have to work <laughs> right, from home. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think I, technically, by some definitions, I live. You and I both live in tiny houses by the American definition of a house, but the, anyway, yeah. that's a separate conversation. I'm just saying that um, you know, if the Wall Street thing was about excess and largeness and like more, there we've talked about it often on the podcast. The new kind of form of expression among millennials is like, le- you know, potentially yeah. less, yeah. more experiences. But you're right, the coronavirus thing throws out this experiences hypothesis. <laughs> technically speaking it's like i'll have a small house so i can travel but i can't travel yeah i feel like such like you'd be such an idiot if you invested in experience but i mean berkshire hathaway had its big um conference this week and warren buffett is the head of the company obviously um he admitted that he made the big huge error investing in airlines but he was doing exactly what people who invested in airbnb and others were doing which is in millennials had been about it was about less things and more experiences and then the entire experience economy evaporated overnight, right? So. Maybe that's a, that's a good one last remark is that um, when you're investing, when you're doing finance, you're never thinking about the now. You're, you're comparing the past to the future and trying to predict the future. And it's a, Warren Buffett seems happy, but I, to me, the frustrating part about investing is like, Okay, I can put some money into something. Like I think Amazon will go up. Let's say, let's say you 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 have a bit of savings and like I put five thousand dollars on Amazon, like mm-hmm. for my future, for my retirement. And they do really well in the next two years, and and it, the the amount triples. And it's like okay, now I have fifteen. I can take it out and have a nice vacation and buy a coffee table. But then years later, you're like, oh man, I can't believe I I took it out. So then you don't take it out. And then you wait, and then the market goes down. You're like, well, I'm not going to take it out now. 
mm-hmm. the market is down. And then you're like, I'll wait a little longer. And before you know it, you're dead. So it, it, it's this yeah. stupid thing investing as a metaphor for this movie of just like mm. never living in the moment. Just like, Everything is artifice. It'll get better. It'll get better. It'll get better. And Noth- yeah, nothing is real. Everything is artifice. It is all you yeah. are. He says in the first opening scene, I'm just a shell. And then in the last scene, which uh, he says, um, this is my confession. There's no but catharsis. Uh, yeah, my confession is worthless or something like that. Or Yeah. This means nothing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's... Uh, well, it's about, it's about like, he's, he's explaining to the world uh, his murders to his friends and is kind of explaining how evil Wall Street is. And he's like, well, but nobody really understands it anyway. So it doesn't even matter. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah, there's no audience for this message. Well, it, that's the thing I really uh, don't understand, like bailouts and whether they go to small business or big companies and printing money and whatever media you read, you believe you're being scammed or that you're being helped by the government and it's too big to comprehend. And it's like, yeah, I guess some people are making money. I don't know. Well, I think at the end of the day, it's like, do you, you know, can for a lot of people, it's going to come down to putting a roof over their head. That's what happened in 2008. That's what happened here in Canada in the 90s. Yeah, but then when you read like, oh, the bailouts went to such and such and it's socialism for the rich and uh, individual uh, ruggedness for the poor and capitalism for the poor. And and, well, that's my, you read, that's why I always get uncomfortable with politics. Then later you read that actually the 2008 bailouts, they paid everything back with interest and the government made money on it. And Mm, I I don't know. But but what what I'm trying to say is that the finance world is very specialized, and so for you to have an opinion on it, it's is a lot of study required. Yeah, but you should know this that like for them to profit, you know, they need to steal labor hours from you. Like you need to work hard. You need to work. If someone's not working, you're working, right? Like that's why nothing is free. Anyway, um, we 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 could do a we could definitely go deeper on this, but. I don't. I think like if you have a billion dollar company that's getting a loan that could have gone to someone who like a restaurant, the profit margins are extremely low, and then the staff of those restaurants make even less. It's like you know, it's it's not. Yeah, good. yeah. Instinctively, I agree with you. And then depending on which economic expert is talking, and it's their whole life study, I'm like, oh, that makes sense that they say that, or that mm-hmm. makes sense that they. I think visually, you always think, yeah, we should help the mom and pop and. Uh, 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 of course, but yeah, I'm, I, what I'm trying to say is that finance is so complex that he's confessing that he basically robbed from everyone, but it's so complex that no one really pays attention. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what end. I'm saying in with the, the crimes of, uh, yeah, let's say that Wall Street is, is doing wealth crimes, but they're too complicated to understand. That's why the Trump argument stands, which is like, you know, you can just yeah. get away with stealing from people, murdering people at the end of the day. And then people get get really upset if someone on welfare buys themselves a treat. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, like someone's like, you know, raping women and potentially <laughs> yeah. murdering people and, <laughs> and like nosediving the American economy. And, you know, so anyway... Writer, yeah, good times. <laughs> so next week, um, next week, what are we going to discuss? Well, actually, so portrait I, uh, of a lady. Yeah, small um, little bit of a- anecdote, uh, which is that we, you know, we we choose the film. We've been choosing the films kind of based on surfing a wave, kind of like one has led to another. But Kristen, my partner, listens, uh, and so does uh, 
Christina, your partner, um, they're usually like in the bedroom upstairs or whatever. But in our both of our open concept apartments, we literally have the same floor plan. Uh, <laughs> they they listen to our rhetoric and they're like, "Hey, how come you're not?" You know, in Kristen's case, she's like, "How come you're not presenting this type of film?" And, sh- and specifically, like uh, films that present. Um, the point of view of women and she's like you're just talking about buddy films and like guy movies and even you know so anyway I was like okay well could you well, recommend there's an a easy film? reply to that it's like well I'm a guy so I like guy films yeah but she was like she started to get excited this morning and she's like she gave me a list of films and then and then she said this was my favorite film this year and she often watches whole series of television series and movies without me because she says I won't understand or I won't like them which I take great offense to right now. She's watching Deadwood, which apparently is amazing. And I should have got on board, but I I've didn't. Um, she says there's a lot of swearing and uh, these things called hoople heads. Anyway, there's a lot of racism. <laughs> I, I asked her for a recommendation for that reason. And, and Raphael, it was, you know, like, well, it's your choice. <laughs> we'll see where it goes. And she said, she recommended a French film. So this will be our first film. Well, it won't be our first with subtitles. Cause there were some subtitles in Tokyo. Uh, but um, it's a, a film called Portrait of a Woman on Fire. And I know very little about this film outside of having watched the trailer. So um, we're all in it for, it's a new film, relatively speaking, it's from this year. Um, so we'll just, we'll check it out. We'll see what it's like. And I'm sure it'll, it'll it's about, uh, there, there's some painting in there. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, it's a period film. So it really puts, uh, puts the pressure on me to enjoy period cinema, which I often Actually, I've been surprised. I've, I've enjoyed a few period movies that uh, Kristen's brought uh, forward this year, including a readaptation of Little Women. The but good old days. The good old days. Yeah. So maybe it's a time to get out of our present context and, and go way back. Um, there yeah, you go. Let's do it. Let's okay. try it on. Let's see try you it on next week. Yeah. See you next week. Is that a gram? New card. What do you think? Oh, very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman, but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. <laughs> that is really super. How did nitwit like you get so tasteful? <laughs> I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. But wait, you ain't seen nothing yet. Raised lettering, pale nimbus, white. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Subtle off-white coloring. A tasteful thickness of it. Oh my god. It even has a watermark. Something wrong? Patrick? You're sweating. <laughs>